You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 70, Ousted Governors and the Bermuda Powder Raid. Last week, I talked about how the southern colonies had all chased off their royal governors during the summer and fall of 1775. It then occurred to me that I really ought to do the same for the rest of the colonies to make clear that the entire continent was up in arms. So I want to go through a brief overview of New England and Middle Colonies and what they were doing with their governments in the summer and fall of 1775. Massachusetts, of course, was the epicenter of the rebellion, and I've already discussed that colony's situation in great detail in past episodes. The siege of Boston that bottled up the regular army also restricted the head of that army, General Gage, who was also governor of Massachusetts. In September 1775, London sent orders recalling the governor-slash-general, requiring him to return to London for consultation. The governor left, and as it turned out, would never return and I'll talk about this in more detail next week. But the bottom line is that outside of Boston, Britain had no control in the colony, and the governor had to leave. In New Hampshire, Governor John Wentworth faced increasing hostility from local patriots. He kept a low profile after Lexington and Concord, but on June 13th, a mob surrounded his house in search of a Loyalist militia officer. After that, Governor Wentworth and his family moved to the relative safety of Fort William and Mary. Now remember, that's the fort which the militia had little problem capturing twice in one week the year before. See episode 51 for more details. It still had a small military garrison, but now also had the backing of a Navy ship just offshore. Still, by August, the fort seemed threatened anyway. Wentworth sent his family to London and joined General Gage in Boston. The Fort Garrison left in September, leaving New Hampshire completely under Patriot control. Rhode Island had an elected governor, not appointed by the king, which assured some local popularity. Even so, Governor Joseph Wanton of Rhode Island was a Quaker and deemed too loyalist for the Patriot population. Governor Wanton won re-election in May 1775, just weeks after Lexington and Concord although his new lieutenant governor, Nicholas Cook, was a committed patriot. Wanton refused to raise an army to fight against the British in Boston and refused to commission any militia officers. The Patriot-controlled assembly did not impeach him. It simply decided that he was not governor anymore and allowed Lieutenant Governor Cook to assume the duties of the governor. Wanton remained in Rhode Island, maintaining a strict neutrality, and he continued to live in the colony as a private citizen until his death in 1780. Next door in Connecticut, Governor Trumbull was also an elected governor. 
and unlike Governor Wanton in Rhode Island, Trumbull gave his full support to the Patriot cause. Several of his sons joined the Continental Army, and he worked hand-in-hand with the Patriots in his colony to further the Patriot cause. As a result, he continued in office for another decade, and he would be the only colonial governor to transition to state governor. There was, however, no royal authority in the colony. A New York was a little more complicated. Although the Patriots had largely taken over in the days following Lexington and Concord, the Royal Navy maintained a large presence in New York Harbor. Several hundred regulars also remained in New York City. Royal Governor William Tryon had taken a trip to London in 1774. He was still away when Patriots took control of the colony. Unlike New England, New York still had a vocal and active Loyalist faction during the summer of 1775. Governor Tryon returned to a divided New York City on June 25, 1775. That same day, General Washington also arrived in the city on his way to Boston to take command of the Continental Army. Both men received welcoming committees. Tryon realized that he had lost all political control but attempted to serve the king as best he could. He remained in the city, but under the constant protection of a small detachment of regulars. On July 20th, patriots under the command of radical New York leader Isaac Sears seized the contents of the Royal Armory at Turtle Bay. They turned over the munitions to Connecticut for use in the patriot cause. The raid was an embarrassment to the Royal Navy still sitting in New York Harbor the British went on alert for future Patriot efforts to seize munitions. On August 23rd, a raiding party under orders from the New York Provincial Congress attempted to take control of 21 cannon from the battery stationed at the southern tip of Manhattan, what we today know as Battery Park. The British troops exchanged fire with one British regular killed in the exchange. The Navy ship Asia fired several broadsides at the raiders. The cannon fire damaged several buildings in lower Manhattan, resulting in many New Yorkers fleeing the city. They feared, quite correctly, that it would become more of a battlefield in the near future. About that same time, the Continental Congress ordered the arrest of any royal officers who refused to support the Patriot cause. The New York Provincial Congress, however, refused to arrest Governor Tryon. Although the Patriots controlled the city, they feared the Navy would level the city if they kidnapped the royal governor. So Governor Tryon stuck it out until October, when he finally accepted that remaining in the city was just too risky. On October 19th, Governor Tryon boarded the British sloop Halifax, and he remained on board, attempting to perform his duties as governor and receiving guests aboard ship. He would sit in New York Harbor until the British invasion the following year. At that point, he would be able to return to the city with tens of thousands of British regulars that occupied New York. Now down in New Jersey, Patriots formed a provincial congress in May 1775. Like New York, the state had both strong Patriot and Loyalist factions. The royal governor, William Franklin, remained in the colony throughout 1775 as did the Loyalist, or at least moderate, General Assembly. Now, part of this may be because Franklin's father, 
was the famous patriot Benjamin Franklin, and people may have thought that Benjamin might be able to lure his son to the patriot cause. Governor Franklin, however, remained a committed loyalist. In November, the New Jersey Assembly considered sending its own petition to the king seeking a peaceful solution. The Continental Congress, which had already received the king's rejection of its own olive branch petition, sent a rebuke to the New Jersey legislature for attempting its own petition. Now, without context, New Jersey's effort might seem to be reasonable to many. The king rejected the Olive Branch petition because he did not recognize Congress as a legitimate entity. But the king would have no such reason for rejecting a petition from a royal government in New Jersey. The king, though, had made clear that he was in no mood for diplomacy by this point. The Continental Congress sent a delegation to the New Jersey Assembly, headed by John Dickinson, to talk them out of a petition. Dickinson, the moderate, delivered the message that the time for talk was over and that we had to fight now. He argued that the king had declared war and that New Jersey sending a petition at this point would make the colonies seem weak and divided. Dickinson also carried the implied message that the Continental Congress would take exclusive power of negotiating with London for the protection of colonial rights. So this was a big step, and kind of a surprising one for a man like Dickinson. He did, however, convince the Assembly not to send the petition. New Jersey's petition attempt, though, worried many that the colony was not solidly on board with the Patriot cause. This lack of dedication may be another reason why the Patriots continued to allow the royal governor to sit in power. That finally came to an end early the following year, when the New Jersey Provincial Congress finally put the governor under house arrest in January 1776. Later, they moved him to a prison in Connecticut. Eventually, the Patriots turned over the governor to the British as part of a prisoner exchange. Over in Pennsylvania, with an elected assembly, the colony had a relatively smooth transition to the Patriot cause. The Penn family held the office of proprietor, which acted as governor since the colony's founding. The king made no appointments there. The Penn family simply owned the colony. Proprietor Thomas Penn, son of the founder William Penn, died in London in March 1775. His son John Penn had been running the colony in his father's name for years, and John Penn seemed to support the Patriot cause generally. He personally carried the Olive Branch petition to the king in 1775. Penn stayed in London after delivering the petition. From there, he remained head of the colony in name only, until the colony declared independence in 1776 and did away with the proprietorship. Delaware also fell under the control of the Pennsylvania proprietor until its independence in 1776. But again, there really was no royal authority in either of those colonies. Maryland royal governor Robert Eden had been born in England, but had married the daughter of Maryland's proprietor, part of the Calvert family and was pretty well respected in the colony. He had been supportive of colonial rights since taking office in 1769, but as governor, of course, he could not support armed opposition to the king. The Patriot-backed Annapolis Convention took effective control of the colony in 1775, and they asked Governor Eden to step down. Though he refused to resign formally, 
he took no steps to prevent the Assembly from running the colony as they saw fit. When the Continental Congress ordered his arrest in the fall of 1775, the Assembly refused, allowing him to remain as nominal governor. Eden stuck it out until June 1776 before finally boarding a British Navy ship and returning to England. Okay, so with that, I think I've covered all 13 colonies that would eventually found the United States and shown how they were either entirely or mostly under Patriot control by the end of the summer of 1775. It is not necessarily true that the majority of Americans in each colony supported the Patriot cause. It seems more that the Patriot factions were more active and organized in each colony. Now, I haven't discussed the southernmost British colony in North America, Florida. At that time, East and West Florida had become British at the end of the French and Indian War. Spain gave the Floridas to Britain as part of the price of getting back Cuba. Although the Spanish had a colony in St. Augustine for over 200 years, the European population of East Florida was tiny. Virtually all the Spanish left after the British took over the colony, and by 1775, there were only about 3,000 Europeans living in the colony, 2,000 of which lived in St. Augustine. Now, over in West Florida, which centered around Pensacola, they had a population of around 6,000, but this was far more removed from the rest of the colonies. So, I'm really only focused on East Florida here. The British Army kept one regiment at St. Augustine as its southern command. But really, no one was flocking to the colony in any great numbers. Floridians did not seem to share the outrage of their fellow colonists to the north. They had willingly paid the stamp tax and other taxes that had created the showdowns in other colonies. The small population of planters showed no interest in being part of any rebellion. The royal governor, Patrick Tonin, served without interruption until the end of the war. As a result, Florida remained firmly in the Loyalist camp, and over the course of the war, many Loyalists, particularly from the southern colonies, would flee to Florida, increasing its population to around 17,000. But in 1775, Florida was a much tinier backwater. General Gage even ordered part of the single regiment left in Florida to provide reinforcements for him in Boston. As a result, the British military presence in Florida sunk to a token level of a couple of hundred men. In addition to being a destination for fleeing Loyalists, St. Augustine would serve as a prisoner of war camp during the Revolution. And later in the war, the Spanish would begin looking at ways to recover Florida, and that, of course, will be a topic for future episodes. In 1775, Florida remained pretty quiet. One exception to this came on August 7th, when an armed sloop from Georgia, called the Commerce, discovered a British transport vessel named the Betsy that was sailing to St. Augustine with a large supply of gunpowder. The Commerce spotted the Betsy at night and came alongside her with only a few black crew members remaining above deck. The watchman of the Betsy assumed that it was a cargo ship run by slaves and did not alert the sleeping crew. Once alongside, the Georgians captured the crew and unloaded 170 barrels of gunpowder before making their escape. Now, the only other North American colony under British control at this time was Canada. 
and I'll get into more details about that when I discuss the invasion of Canada. But for now, I'd just like to say that, of course, Florida and Canada remain pretty solidly in the Loyalist camp. Now, of course, Britain also had a few island colonies in the hemisphere. And today I only plan to talk about one of them, the small island of Bermuda, where patriots conducted a raid over the summer of 1775. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, Washington arrived in Cambridge to find that his army had almost no gunpowder at all, not even enough to fight one significant battle. He immediately began a desperate search for powder anywhere he could find it, while trying to keep the shortage a secret. If the British discovered the shortage, the regulars in Boston might simply march out and rout the Continentals, who probably would not be able to shoot back for very long. Washington was able to scrape up some munitions from other colonial stockpiles and from smugglers who were making every effort to bring back powder from Europe. But getting more powder was slow, and the supplies acquired were small. You can really feel for Washington's position when you read some of his letters at this time. He practically begs anyone to send anything, and the search for powder went anywhere in the world that could serve as a possible source. Bermuda was a small, relatively isolated British colony north of the West Indies. It's a tiny island, actually a group of islands, totaling about 20 square miles of land. Bermuda as a colony had developed on trade, well, actually piracy for most of its history, hitting French and Spanish ships in the West Indies. Today we would call them the Pirates of the Caribbean. The island also developed a strong shipbuilding trade and became a major exporter of salt. Much of the salt was collected from the shallows of the nearby Turks Islands, which Bermuda had been disputing with the Bahamas for decades. Now, Bermuda's governor, James Brewer, a former British military officer, had governed the island for more than a decade. Like any royal governor, he strongly supported the king and the government in London. Governor Brewer's son, Lieutenant John Brewer, died while storming Bunker Hill in June. Another son, Lieutenant George Brewer, was wounded in that same battle. This probably did nothing to endear Governor Brewer to the colonial cause. The slaves made up a majority of the island population. The remainder were mostly British colonists who tended to support the Patriot cause. The colonists on Bermuda had gone through most of the same annoying attempts at taxation that raised the ire of their fellow colonists in North America. Bermuda also had close relations to the North American colonies for trade. Bermuda Council President Henry Tucker had two brothers living in Virginia, both of whom sided with the Patriots, so he was especially sympathetic to the cause. The problem for Bermuda was one of geography. Even though many on the island supported the Patriots, they could not join the Patriot cause because the British Navy could very easily cut off the entire island. The island was completely dependent on outside trade for food. Bermudans imported nearly 90% of the food they ate, and almost all of this food came from the North American colonies. Once the Continental Congress banned all trade with the British West Indies, Bermuda had to find another source of food or face massive starvation. Most of the other islands in the West Indies were also net importers of food since they mostly grew cash crops. So trading with other British islands wasn't much of an option, and trade with anyone outside the British Empire was also banned. 
Now, Henry Tucker had his brother in Virginia start a correspondence with Thomas Jefferson about the problems the island faced without trade. Eventually, Tucker's father, also named Henry, traveled from Bermuda to Philadelphia to meet directly with the Continental Congress on the issue. Tucker met in informal discussions with Benjamin Franklin and Robert Morris, who both sat on the secret committee set up to secure munitions for the Continental Army. They assured Tucker that if he could provide munitions, they would be happy to provide food for him to bring back to Bermuda. In July, Congress passed a general rule that ships bringing munitions would be exempt from the trade embargo. This law did not single out Bermuda, mostly because they didn't want to bring attention to them, but it was clearly done in response to Tucker's negotiations. Now, Bermuda, of course, could not simply send the powder to the Continental Congress without getting in big trouble with London. Instead, the two groups appear to have concocted a sham raid where the Continentals would take the powder while Bermuda officials close their eyes and then provide secret compensation later. The exact details of the raid are unclear, but Bermuda had a powder house with over 100 barrels of gunpowder. Like most powder houses, it was built on a relatively isolated area near the coast since no one liked living near a building that was packed with explosives. On the night of August 14th, a group of men broke into the powder house and removed most of the barrels. As this was thousands of pounds, it would have taken a large number of men to pull it off in a matter of hours. A ship with the Virginia registry, the Lady Catherine, took the powder back to Philadelphia and presumably left the locals who had assisted with a supply of food or other items of value in trade. Later, Henry Tucker's brother, St. George Tucker, admitted that he had been among the crew that seized the powder for the Patriots. The governor reported that both the Lady Catherine and another ship from South Carolina were spotted in the area, but that neither had landed at port on the island. Presumably the crew had used smaller boats to move the powder out to the ship at sea. It turned out the South Carolina ship had nothing to do with the raid, but it is mentioned in many of the contemporary accounts. The raid was such a secret that even George Washington did not know about it. For several months after the raid, Washington corresponded with the governor of Rhode Island, trying to develop plans for a raid of his own on Bermuda. He even wrote a letter to the Patriots in Bermuda in September, asking for their cooperation in getting their powder to his army in Cambridge. He did not know that the armory was by that time pretty much empty due to the successful raid by the crew of the Lady Catherine, and that most of the powder was already on its way to his army. Now, Henry Tucker was clearly involved in this raid, but he never got into trouble. Possibly the fact that he was married to the royal governor's daughter encouraged everyone to sweep the incident under the rug. After these events, Bermuda accepted that it had to side with Britain. The Navy's control of the seas meant it would not get regular food imports unless the British Navy allowed it. As a British colony, many Loyalists immigrated to the island during the war, tilting its population more to the Loyalist side. And later in the war, Bermuda made a fortune as a base for privateers raiding American merchant vessels. Okay, that's all for this week. Next week, we're going to head back to London to take a look at how the ministry plans to crush this rebellion once and for all in 1776.
This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, and welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Now, before I get to this week's recommendation, I want to remind everyone about my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. This is different from the blog, which is at blog.amrevpodcast.com, and from my podcast hosting site, which is pod.amrevpodcast.com. On the website, I post my book recommendation of the week. Uh, It also contains links to every blog and podcast episode, and it also is where I post any special announcements. Right now, if you type in the address, it forwards you to a Google Sites page. I'd like to get the address to work on the site itself, but Google Sites just doesn't seem to be making that easy. In any event, if you go to amrevpodcast.com, you will be able to get to the website and view everything that's there. Now, much of today's episode was an overview of the New England and Middle Colonies, which, along with last week's look at the Southern Colonies, shows just how quickly things had turned ugly for the British colonial rulers. Royal authority got pushed aside quite easily. The Patriots were simply too well organized and were very successful in squelching any Tory organization. They seemed to catch the ministry completely off guard. The ministry had always assumed that the vast majority of colonists would stand up in defense of royal authority. When they did not, there really wasn't any plan B to enforce the authority of the king and parliament. England had traditionally been pretty effective in holding people down. In places like Wales, Ireland, and Scotland, authorities kept local lords in place who knew how to keep order and deal with the local powers when they arose. In the colonies, the British never really did this. The colonial leaders themselves had removed the Native American population and, in many colonies, used effective power to keep the African-American labor force from rising up. But no one had really focused on the growing population of freemen. Colonial governors acted more like ambassadors than rulers and London often handed out those jobs like political favors. So when it came time to fight, the British simply were not ready for one. The last part of today's episode was about the Bermuda Powder Raid. Now, I think the Powder Raid reminds us that the 13 colonies were not alone. There were at least, I think, 16 island colonies in the South Atlantic under British control. Most of these, however, did not have large populations of British colonists. Most were run by a few very small and wealthy families who had a lot to lose from a revolution. They also relied much more heavily on the British Navy and British trade for survival. 
So Bermuda's initial relationship with the colonies in rebellion was really an exception. The island colonies were not willing to risk everything for a war with Britain. That's what makes the Bermuda Raid an interesting side note to the war. And this brings me to today's book recommendation, The Defining Story of Bermuda's Great Gunpowder Plot, 1775, by Michael Marsh. Now, I'm afraid this book wins my recommendation by default. It is literally the only book I could find that covers the Bermuda Gunpowder Raid in anything more than a passing mention. The book itself was self-published in 2016 and is only 136 pages long, and it covers some topics beyond the Bermuda Raid. Even so, it is the best I could find and seems to cover the topic better than any other books. I know this is a relatively obscure incident and that there are not a great many records, but I really do wish there was something better. If you do want to read more, you may get almost as much out of the Journal of the American Revolution article that I have a link to in my blog as well. Marsh's book, however, gets into a little more detail in the way only a book can do. If you're looking for something more on this particular topic, this appears to be all we've got. So, sorry if that's not a particularly enthusiastic recommendation, but it's the best I can do today. That's it for this week. I hope you'll join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.